You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, authors, and museum directors to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we're with Benjamin Rubin talking about the Battle of Ramsar's Mill. So welcome, Benjamin. Thank you. Benjamin, uh, before we get started, we want to give a shout out to one of our affiliates, southerncampaigns.org, which specializes in peer review articles and research resources for the American Revolution, including pension applications from the patriots of the Revolutionary War. That's southerncampaigns.org. So Benjamin, the battle at Ramsar's Mill is kind of unique in that it's right at the uh, borderland between North and South Carolina. It was, came at a pivotal time in the American Revolution when the British were coming up through Charleston and coming into Camden, and then Ramsar's Mill happened. But it really is an interesting uh, piece of history and one that in some ways has been downplayed over the years. So tell us a little bit about uh, Ramsar's Mill. I think Ramsar's Mill is one of those moments where uh, the, the direction of the war in the South really takes a dramatic turn. Um, you know, it, it could have happened one way and it ends up happening a very, very different way. The consequences for, uh, particularly for loyalists in North Carolina and for, um, you know, British prospects of, you know, it, inspiring the, um, the loyalist population to rise up were, you know, dashed by, by the Battle of uh, Ramsar's Mill. So if we kind of pick up the story at the, the beginning of June, which is probably the, the right place to pick it up, the beginning of June, 1780, there's really three events that kind of set the stage for, you know, the, the situation. The first is the fall of Charleston, which had happened earlier in May, May 12th, I believe. And so that's the vast majority of the Continental Army in uh, South Carolina was, well, in the, the Southern colonies period, had fallen into British hands. And so from that point forward, the British are really consolidating control in South Carolina. The second is the defeat of the last remaining American continental forces in South Carolina, which happened at Waxhaws at the end of May. And, and that was Buford. Yep, yeah, that's, yeah, sorry, that's, that's Buford's regiment uh, that was destroyed at Waxhaws. And then the final thing is Clinton's proclamation, which is issued on June 1st, as you know, Henry Clinton is getting back on a boat to New York City and leaving Cornwallis in control. And Clinton's proclamation essentially declared South Carolina to be uh, to be pacified. Now that turned out not to be the case, obviously, or you know, this would be a very short story. But that certainly was the the British perspective is at that point was that South Carolina had been pacified, and the next move was to carry the war into North Carolina. And much as with South Carolina, the British intended for the the loyalists of North Carolina to carry out most of the fighting in the state. The, the British army in the South was always fairly small, the regular forces. The, the British Southern strategy relied on uh, loyalist forces to do most of the fighting. And so this kind of sets the stage for um, John Moore's trip into, into North Carolina, which is where the, the story of Ramsar's Mill generally starts. So in North Carolina, North Carolina is a fairly long state east to west. Where are you talking about in North Carolina? So we're talking about uh, the areas just west of Charlotte. So 
Lincoln County, which is actually larger than today's Lincoln County, but the, the 18th century Lincoln County, it was just to the west of, uh, of Charlotte and was basically the westernmost point of settlement in North Carolina at that time. Is that where Moore was from? It, it was actually. So <clears throat> Moore is, is originally from the, uh, the Lincoln County area, or at least had lived most of his life there. It's a little bit unclear uh, whether he was born there or he was born earlier um, before his father had migrated into the area. But he certainly lived most of his life there in, in what then was called Tryon County before the creation of Lincoln County. And interestingly, his father, Moses Moore, was an early supporter of the Patriot cause and had actually signed several of the resolutions opposing British government and ha actually had become something of a, a Whig community leader. But John Moore, the son, for whatever reason, you know, he, he went away to college in Eastern North Carolina and came back a Tory. And so he and his father were kind of at odds about that. And in 1779, at the, the height of Whig control of North Carolina, John Moore had tried to basically stage uh, an insurrection, a counter-revolution, and had been chased out of town, at which point he had gone to Georgia and joined the British Army and had been fighting in Cornwallis's army for the past year and a half or so. He actually got promoted while he was with the British at that point, right? He did, yeah. So by this point, he is a lieutenant colonel in the, uh, the provincial forces. He was the second in command of the Royal North Carolina Regiment. So uh, the Royal North Carolina Regiment is basically this group of North Carolina refugees who had been assembled with the British Army in, uh, originally in Georgia and formed into this, you know, essentially regular army regiment. And yeah, so by this point, Moore is uh, the second highest ranking officer in that regiment. So he's, they formed this reg or this, uh, this group of people from North Carolina to become this regiment, and they're all in Georgia. Why were they in Georgia to begin with? Because that's where the war was in 1779. It, was, uh, it was outside of Savannah and Augusta. So by 1780, by the time that our story takes place, it, the Royal North Carolina Regiment was actually in South Carolina and was operating as uh, a garrison for a number of the British outposts in the backcountry. John Moore himself, he was a, uh, a big guy. Yeah, according to a lot of accounts, yeah. He evidently held some sway both physically and uh, had a magnetic personality to bring people to to his side, so yeah. to speak. So, uh, and that's why I guess the British gave, gave him a leadership role. Yeah, so it's a little bit unclear um, what his instructions were when he goes to, when he goes back to, to Lincoln County. This is one of those great controversies that developed after the war because Cornwallis writes later. Uh, he tells us what he told Moore to do, but that's all written in retrospect, right? Cornwallis's uh, memoirs are very much about shielding himself from blame. And there's significant reason to believe that Moore's instructions were worded a little bit differently than what Cornwallis tells us. So after the war, Cornwallis tells us that his instructions to Moore were to go to, to the Ramsers Mill area, to be in communication with the Loyalists, but basically to lay low, to bring in the harvest, and to wait for the British Army, right? That they were going to be invading North Carolina after they had finished uh, consolidating power in South Carolina, which he expected to be in the fall. 
and that what he wanted was for more to lay the groundwork for an uprising that would happen in the fall of 1780. Now, if you look at the correspondence that Cornwallis is sending at that time, the instructions that he sends to Lord Rawdon at Camden, also the dispatches that he's sending back to his subordinate, Henry, or his, uh, his superior, Henry Clinton, you get a little bit of a different picture where it appears that his actual instructions to Moore gave Moore a little bit more discretion in terms of how to, how to interpret these orders. Now, one other important thing uh, that's worth noting is that at the time that Moore rides out of the British camp at Camden and heads north to North Carolina, the Battle of Waxhaws had already happened, but Moore was not aware of it. He had not heard about the Battle of Waxhaws yet. And this, this becomes important to the story a little bit later. But in any event, he arrives, uh, he actually comes to his father's home, which is uh, a cabin on Indian Creek. And this is another one of those places in the story where, you know, there are some interesting implications and no hard answers from the historical record as to how his father received him. Because his father was this prominent Whig leader, or at least had been earlier. We don't know if maybe his sympathies had changed by that point, or whether he disagreed with his son but decided to protect him anyway because they were family, or whether, you know, his son effectively kidnapped him, you know, and, and held him hostage in his own home. We don't actually know. Any of those are, are possible. But whatever the truth, Moses Moore's cabin turns out to be the location where John Moore decides to assemble the, the local loyalist leaders. So did he assemble these by himself or did he use other family members or other friends in the community to do that? The historical record is not super clear on that, but it probably would have been, he would have contacted some individuals who he knew were loyalists um, he would have probably contacted them personally, and then word would have spread from, you know, in in sort of the way that, that viral ideas spread, right? Um, so should this be the Battle of Moses Moore's Plantation instead of Ramsar's Mill? Well, the, the battle itself doesn't take place at, okay. at Moses Moore's cabin. Uh, it does take place near there on the properties that are owned by the Ramsar Mill, the Ramsar property, which is uh, where the mill itself was, and also the, the Reinhardt farm, uh, Christian Reinhardt's farm. And those are near the, the location of uh, a high school today. There's actually a high school sitting on top of the, the battlefield. Okay, all right. So he decides to get the word out, hey, everybody meet over here. We're gonna talk about some things. Then what happens? Yeah, so... so when, when was that? So the original meeting at Ramsour's Mill happens on June 7th. Okay. Okay, so in, in fact, uh, Cornwallis' story changes quite a bit. Um, now, we don't know the exact details or the exact contents of the letter that, uh, that Moore carried with him. But on June 2nd, so before the battle, around the time that Moore is being sent north... Cornwallis writes to his superior, to Henry Clinton, uh, and I'm going to quote here. He writes, I have sent emissaries to our friends in North Carolina to state my situation to them and to submit to them whether it would not be prudent for them to remain quiet until I can give them effectual support, which could only be done by a force remaining in the country. At the same time, I assured them that if they thought themselves a match for their enemies without any regular force, 
and were determined to rise at all events, I would give them every assistance in my power by incursions of light troops, furnishing of ammunition, etc. Right? That's what Clinton says, or what Cornwallis says on the second. He says to Clinton, I sent them there, I told them to consider staying quiet, but if they were thought they thought they were a match for the Whigs, to go ahead and rise and I would support them. Alright, now here's what he writes to Clinton not even a month later, on June 30th, after the disaster at Ramsar's Mill. He writes, quote, I sent emissaries to the leading persons amongst our friends recommending in the strongest terms that they should tend to their harvest, prepare provisions, and remain quiet until the king's troops were ready to enter the province. Notwithstanding these precautions, I am sorry to say that a considerable number of loyal inhabitants in Tryon County, encouraged and headed by a Colonel Moore, whom I know nothing of, and excited by the sanguine emissaries of the very sanguine and imprudent Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton, rose on the 18th instant, without order or caution, and were in a few days defeated by General Rutherford with some loss. I still hope this unhappy business will not materially affect the general plan or occasion any commotions on the frontiers of this province. So these are both letters from Cornwallis to Clinton, written less than a month apart, and they paint a very different picture of what Moore's instructions were. It kind of threw him out with the bathwater, didn't he? <laughs> he did. In fact, in, this, in the second instant, Cornwallis literally says that he doesn't know who Moore is, despite telling Clinton in the earlier letter that he had sent emissaries of whom he is obviously referring to Moore. Right. Um, so, take that for what it is. Um, you know, when we, when we talk about what, uh, what Moore's instructions were. Um, in any event, Early June, Moore is in, uh, is in North Carolina. He has assembled this group of loyalists on June 7th at his father, Moses Moore's home. Um, and he uh, gives them some instructions. There are about 40 men who showed up. Um, again, we don't know exactly what those instructions were. But from that point, they, um, they dispersed uh, and with instructions to reassemble again at a later date. Uh, at Ramsar's Mill. Now at this point, um, uh, the, the American forces are massing in Charlotte uh, on the North Carolina-South Carolina border. They anticipated a British invasion of North Carolina. Um, and at this point, the North Carolina-South Carolina frontier has basically become the boundary between the two sides. Um, the British are in control of South Carolina. The Americans still have control of North Carolina. The government of South Carolina is in exile in North Carolina, and the commander of the Western District of uh, North Carolina Militia, which would be Griffith Rutherford, is frantically assembling a force of men to block any British advance into North Carolina. Now, Rutherford initially imagines that an advance into North Carolina is imminent, but quickly realizes that the, the British are not coming, uh, at least not immediately, and much like Moore, he dismisses his force uh, to go back home and be ready because it's very difficult at this point for the state of North Carolina to keep uh, an army in the field. They just don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the supplies. They don't have the, um, you know, the, the means to keep an army in the field. You know, also these men are mostly farmers who can't be away from their fields for very long. 
And so, you know, it's very common for the militia to be called together to respond to an individual threat. And then once that threat is neutralized or fails to materialize, um, they would be sent home. So this was the militia that were left. All the, all the soldiers that were given up to the Continental Army years prior in 1776, 1777, who went up north, they were all captured at Charleston. They were, yeah. The North Carolina line was all captured at Charleston. So the only thing left really is the militia. Is the militia, yeah. Okay, all right. So we have this second assembly of uh, the Tories. And this time, another character shows up, uh, Nicholas Welch. And we know even less about Nicholas Welch's mission than we do about John Moore's. And Welch, actually, is the major in the Royal North Carolina Regiment. So whereas John Moore is second in command, Welch is actually third in command in the same regiment. He's, he's right, below, right below Moore. And he was also a local, although not quite as local as Moore, but from the same general area. And he arrives in, in camp with two very important things. One is the account of the Battle of Waxhaws. So again, Moore had not known about Buford's defeat. Welch does. By the time he arrives in the camp, uh, news had spread of the Battle of the Waxhaws and the destruction of Buford's men. And so this is obviously a very motivating story for the loyalists who are there. It, it makes it feel like British support is imminent, you know, like the war is moving in their direction. Um, and then the second thing that uh, Welch brings with him is a bag of gold. And this is another one of those things that's repeated in enough stories that it's probably true, uh, as weird as it sounds. Where would that bag of gold come from? Well, that's a good question. And the most likely answer is the British High Command, right? Which continues to undermine Cornwallis's claims that he was not trying to instigate a, a rebellion in North Carolina. Now, just because it came from the British doesn't necessarily mean that it came from Cornwallis. It could have come from Rawdon, although Rawdon in the years after, in the, the days after Ramsar's Mill appears to know even less about the situation than Cornwallis does. So, you know, either he is being disingenuous or, you know, he actually has no idea but so it's it's a mystery where all this money came from but you know actual hard money is very rare right. in the colonies and especially in the southern colonies at this point and so it almost certainly would have had to have come from the british themselves and so welch has a very different understanding of his directive than than moore does and he is encouraging the loyalists to rise at once and basically take control of the region and wait for, you know, basically hold it in anticipation of this British invasion. And we do know of the two of them, Moore was more cautious and, and wanted to wait, whereas Welch wanted to rise up uh, immediately. Now, you might think, well, that's an easy problem to resolve, right? Because Moore outranks Welch. It, it's very simple. This is a very simple question. They're in the same regiment and Moore is Welch's superior, so his way goes. But that's actually not the way things, uh, things worked out. It turns out that it doesn't really matter who outranks who in the, in the British system, uh, in the provincial military system, because this was an informal militia that they were organizing. And so it really mattered 
who could convince the other side? And Welch, Welch convinces most of these loyalist leaders that the right move is to rise up at once. And at that point, more basically, his options were to abdicate control entirely or to you know, lead this force on the path that it had chosen. Um, and so he decides that latter course. Um, even though he was against rising, uh, he decides to, to command and make the best of the situation. Well, as a part of that idea of rising or that decision to rise, did they have a plan in mind to go and confront anyone at that point? <clears throat> so there, the plan is very nebulous. There is a, a small attempt that is made to catch um, one of the other uh, American officers who's operating in the area, one of the, the partisan commanders, Colonel McDowell, who gets away. But for the most part, their plan sort of stops at, you know, rise up, take control of the mill, Ramsour's mill. And that turns out to be strategically significant because, again, you know, a lot of, a lot of what the British Army needed from loyalists in North Carolina was supplies, right? Control of food. And um, mills are absolutely critical for, for that, for the production of grain. And so taking control of the mill was actually a pretty substantial strategic objective if you anticipate the, the British Army moving north and needing food. And so they figured they would take the mill, they would, they would assemble there, uh, they would use that as the assembly point, and then they'd figure out what they were going to do after that. One problem that they're immediately going to encounter, though, is uh, lack of weapons. So a, a huge number of loyalists are going to gather here at, uh, at Ramsar's Mill for the, the second gathering. We don't have the exact number. Estimates vary, but uh, most historians agree it's somewhere between 900 and 1,400 men. But less than half of them had weapons. And this is because the state had been under... Whig control since 1776, and the Whig government had very systematically gone through and confiscated weapons from known loyalists. And so, you know, the only people who still had weapons were the people who had kept their identities hidden or who had kept their weapons well hidden. And, you know, everyone else had been effectively disarmed. And so one of the things they were counting on the British for was to distribute weapons, to distribute muskets to uh, to this force, which, you know, the British actually had lots and lots of extra weapons at this point because they'd all been captured at Charleston. You know, all of the muskets carried by the Continental Army had been captured at Charleston and the British were prepared to redistribute them. Okay, so what happens there? They, they meet again? They go? Did they go and take over the Ramsar's Mill? They did, yeah. They, they moved, uh, they set up their camp uh, on the mill grounds and the surrounding property, which is Christian Reinhardt's property, and they essentially they essentially wait. Um, so was Ramsor a patriot or a uh, a loyalist? So Ramsor, as far as we can tell, had patriot sympathies, but was not necessarily active in the patriot cause. On the other hand, Christian Reinhardt was a well-known, outspoken patriot. And interestingly enough, one of the first things they do when they move on to the site is that they decided to appoint a number of officers from among the local people. Um, and among those captains were the three brothers Warlick, who would you know, end up playing a major role in, uh, in the battle to come. 
And their sister, Barbara Warlick, was actually married to Christian Reinhardt. And so there's this really interesting family connection uh, between the local Tories and the local Whigs. And Barbara Reinhardt is, uh, you know, formerly Barbara Warlick, is often cited as one of the principal sources of information that the, provided information to the Whigs about uh, the Tory camp. Thank you.